Thank you for joining us for Geezers of Gear, episode number 79. This podcast is brought to you today by Elation Professional. Elation is pleased to announce that the powerful companion LED wash light to its popular Artiste Monet is now available, the Artiste Rembrandt. This 51,000 lumen Rembrandt uses the same 950 watt bright white LED engine and houses the same seven flag spectracolor color mixing and continuous rotation framing as the Monet. The Rembrandt incorporates a unique wash texture concept that gives designers new tools to wash stages while providing textures and depth. Its hotspot LED engine provides an optimized wash field with high center intensity for high output wash applications. Check it out at elationlighting.com. And also, this last week, Obsidian Control Systems announced release of Onyx 4.4 lighting control software, which fully integrates Obsidian's artistic and much anticipated Dylos Pixel Composer. Dylos is fun to use and easy to navigate, bringing an all-new set of visual tools to the creative designer. You can check that out at obsidiancontrol.com. Hello, and here we are, episode 79. So um, last week, Cosmo Wilson, what a friggin' nice guy. I mean, honestly, I've spoken to so many great people on this podcast, 78, well, yeah, 78 of them to be exact, and um, so many great people in this industry, so many great stories, just, you know, a lot of good stuff going on, especially, you know, some of the older geezers that we talk to, just no attitude, love still working in this industry, very appreciative and, and grateful um, for what they've, they've got and for what they continue to be able to do with their life. So Cosmo is definitely one of those guys, and I really enjoyed myself. I actually... Uh, I tried to schedule a an opportunity to see Aerosmith during um, Infocom in June in Vegas, and uh, I think the show is like June seventeenth to the twentieth or eighteenth to the twentieth or something. Um, but unfortunately, Aerosmith ends that run on the fourth of June, and so I won't be able to see it at least not this time, unless I am able to get out to Vegas before then. And you never know; Las Vegas calls me often. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about just briefly today is that a little bird told me that, um, Martin Professional, Martin Lighting is restructuring their business under, uh, the Harman Samsung umbrella where, you know, I think it's very difficult for a company like Martin, uh, to find and, and maintain your identity under such a massive umbrella of, massive businesses and so many people and so many different ideas of how things should operate and, you know, just a lot of very talented people, especially within Harmon and Martin, but it's just difficult. I mean, it's such a big company and it's so hard to remain, you know, you and to 
you know, I, I had this problem. I actually, it's funny that I'm talking about this right now because I went through this. I, <clears throat> at one point, was an owner of Trackman when the sort of second iteration of Trackman, when we took on Comar and were very successful with Comar, this was probably 2000, 1999, 2000. And um, at that time, we were partnered, uh, well, the majority partner in the company was Gerard Cohen, and Gerard also owned Stanton Magnetics. And because of the success of Comar at the time and, and how quickly we grew that business and how much revenue it was bringing in, um, Gerard attracted the attention of a mezzanine fund out of Europe called Mezzanine Management. And um, that fund basically invested into Stanton, who then uh, purchased um, my stock in Trackman, and I became a minority shareholder in this Stanton group thing. And... Immediately, I sensed how difficult that was going to be. First of all, operating under this board of directors who knew nothing about the concert touring business. And I've got all kinds of stories about where the warehouse would close at three o'clock and the lights were off and you couldn't get any shipments out unless you got the order in by, I believe it was 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, in the lighting business at the time, I had tours out you know, with Steve Cohen and with Peter Morse and with all kinds of other designers and needed to be able to support these tours with parts when they needed them. So we would get a call from, you know, Steve Cohen or someone on his team saying, we're going to be in Milan tomorrow or we're going to be in wherever tomorrow, um, Las Vegas, and we need parts uh, we need the following parts, and they got to be there tomorrow morning at my hotel because, you know, blah, 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 we're not going to be around. And so here the warehouse is closed and the lights are off. And I distinctly remember a couple of times where, you know, my uh, support guys were unable to get those parts and they'd come to me and go, Marcel, what do we do? And I'd go walking through the warehouse with a flashlight because the lights were sort of locked off. And, you know, I've got this flashlight trying to find the parts that we needed to overnight and then send the guy down to FedEx or whatever to get those parts out. So my point is a very long point, but there is a there there are some synergies and it's a word I hate to use, but there are synergies between the audio and lighting business, of course. But you can't just shove a lighting and sound company together and expect that it's just going to work itself out. It just doesn't work that way. There are, there are cultural differences. There are different needs. There's a different audience in many cases. Yes, there are some sound and lighting companies that will buy from the same rep. But usually these are very divided teams. And so what Martin had was they had this thing, and I believe it was called Pro Harmon, the Pro Harmon Group or something. And it involved JBL Pro and um, Martin Professional. And there might have been other components in it as well. But basically, it was divided by market segments. And so you would have the touring market and you would have the, uh, and I, sorry, I don't know the names of all their markets, but I know there was a cruise ship and a nightclub market and there was a touring market and there was a, um, uh, there were other ones. And so they were divided by market. So one person would carry sound and lighting products for that market. And there was one sales manager who would handle those customers. And so the problem was, 
you know, first of all, customer relationships are exactly that. They are relationship-based. And you see a lot of people in our industry, myself, John Wiseman, people who have been in the business for a very long time and who are able to go back to that well, regardless of which customer or which company they're with. Uh, you know, some other ones that come to mind, Gary Mass and Nick Freed and Noel Duncan. Um, uh, certainly Eric Loader started with American DJ, then went went to Martin and then back to Elation. Um, but there are some folks who have been with Verilite and with Morpheus and with PRG and with five other companies, and you bring your customer base with you. It's relationship-based. So to expect that a person is going to instantly build those, either an audio person building lighting contacts or a lighting person building audio contacts, that's very challenging. But also just culturally in that business, in those markets, in those industries, there are very big differences between a sound and lighting uh, sort of mentality. And so for me, it's just not something so easy to do to just say, hey, we got a rep calling on that customer. Let's just shove more product, even if it's not in the same world. You know, it's like a, a car salesman deciding, let's say a car dealership decides, hey, we're selling cars to people. Maybe they'll come buy their fencing from us as well. You know, they're still customers. They own homes. You know, let's sell them fencing as, while we're selling them a car. I mean, it's a very stupid analogy, but the point is they're very different. And so today what they've done is, is and again, this is, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this stuff because I kind of heard it in great confidence, but uh, this is a podcast after all, so I got to bring the scoop. And so today they are returning under this restructuring umbrella. They've brought in a new leader. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but he was already within uh, the group of companies and he's much more uh, pro-lighting friendly, apparently. Um, but they've brought in a new leader and they are now returning to managing a pro-lighting team, basically, where... Um, it's managed by lighting people for lighting people in the lighting industry, and they're not going to be trying to sell you a line array system while they're selling you a lighting package or a, uh, whatever. So um, I think that that is a very great thing. I know that <clears throat> in talking to a few people who are actually involved in this process, um, they're very excited again. It's sort of like a rebirth of of Martin Professional, Martin on the on the touring and rental side, the pro line of products. And so um, that's very exciting. I mean, they've definitely, uh, uh, you know, made some moves in their product line. This ERA stuff or ERA uh, stuff looks pretty good to me. And um, the other thing that I've at least been told from someone on the inside is that the rumors that are constantly floating around about the company having a big for sale sign on its head appear to be false. And so I'm not saying they're 100% false, uh, you know, but they appear to be false. And because I was a big part of Martin's history, several people have brought this to me and said, hey, Marcel, would you like to get involved? You know, to, to bring me in as either a, a consultant or an advisor or a member of the management team, God forbid, and... Um, and so, yes, I'm flattered by those requests or whatever. And I did look into sort of the, the authenticity of this. And it doesn't appear to be true that they have a for sale sign on them. So, 
You know, again, I've said this before. I have a lot of history with Martin. I definitely wish them the very best. I hope uh, that this new restructure works out really well for them. There's some great people in that company. Uh, I really like Greg Jones. I really like a lot of the people there. So I wish them the very best, and I hope that this works out. So moving on, today we have uh, an amazing uh, person on the podcast. Seth, Seth Jackson is a... Uh, lighting designer, lighting director, production designer, creative director for many acts, including Selena Gomez, Barry Manilow, Toby Keith, Carrie Underwood, Don Henley, uh, Jason Mraz, uh, Melissa Etheridge, Hilary Duff, American Idols, Live, loads of other stuff. Um, but the interesting sort of twist on it all is that he's also serving as a professor or assistant professor or associate professor, I'm not sure what his title is, at Webster University, um, where he also studied, uh, I think, theater design or theater lighting design or whatever uh, the class was called. Um, but the other thing is, from the very first time I met Seth, he is just genuinely another one of these really nice guys who seriously values the relationships and the people that he's met in the industry. So, um, yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm excited to talk to Seth and I am going to go ahead and bring him on right now. So here we have Mr. Seth Jackson. Hello. Oh, hello, Seth. How are you this morning? Very well. Very well. And I, I will Cold tell you. Cold rainy day. Good day to catch up on things I'm behind on. <laughs> there you go. So uh, it, it's kind of funny, but two lighting guys uh, this morning have spent the last 15 minutes dealing with an audio problem. And uh, so Seth, unfortunately, is calling in from a cell phone. He had one of the best sounding microphones I think I've ever had on this uh, podcast, and we couldn't use it because there was some weird, funky stuff going on. So here we are. Yeah, I'm analog Ma Bell here this morning, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Seth, first of all, thank you for taking the time to do this and um, having uh, read your book this weekend. And I, uh, I'll go into that in a little bit. But I realize how much we actually have to talk to or to talk about. And so, um, you know, hopefully you've got a little bit of time here. We'll try not to make it too terribly long, but I do want to cover a lot of stuff in this. And um, so, yeah, I mean, just to get started, you know, you, I'm pretty comfortable with the knowledge of the fact that you grew up in Missouri. Yeah, St. Louis, in a quiet little suburb just outside. Okay. And, and uh, you don't live there anymore, obviously. You're... Where are you now? Actually, I do. Oh. I do. Oh, I, um, I, I lived in Nashville for about 10, 11 years, and then realized all I was doing was flying away from it to go do work, and so I was like, well, hmm, this will be easier. I'll just be back at home around the family and able to take care of things that way. That makes sense. And so I returned, and yeah. then uh, that was right before American Airlines started peeling all the flights away. So what was perfect for about three years now is a little more challenging. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I live in Palm Beach, and I get what you're saying. So I spend uh, an awful lot of time driving down to Miami or, or best case, Fort Lauderdale. But we've got this great little airport in Palm Beach that I love flying in and out of, but there just isn't anywhere to go, <laughs> sadly. Right. They fly direct nowhere. I don't know how any airline could go places, but absolutely nowhere. So you can pretty much get to Atlanta from Palm Beach. That's it. So any business you need to do in Atlanta, you're good. Everywhere else, you got to kind of go through somewhere. 
Um, You're going to connect. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, it's true. So, um, so you lived, you grew up in in Missouri, in St. Louis, and um, tell me your route to get into this lighting business. When did you get the itch? How did you get the itch? Were you born with it? Um, I kind of was born with it in some weird ways. I mean, I, I, looking back, it was it was always kind of a fascination. I didn't know what it was, but I, I knew I was completely like, oh, watching the TV shows, the, the musical review shows. I'm like, well, what's going on up there, and what's that all about? And I was kind of, I just didn't know what I was seeing. Um, and then as I got older, uh, I started to realize, okay, concerts are a cool thing. I, I want to get to those. And, you know, I was too young to go on my own. So finally, I was about 16 and got to go to see Billy Joel. And we did the whole thing that you did in the 80s, which is you camped out for tickets outside the mall. And then they opened the doors and you quick grab those seats and all yeah. $12 worth. I, uh, I remember <laughs> that in, in Canada, we bought concert tickets at the, um, I believe it was at the Bay the Bay was a, a uh, department store, and still is in Canada, yeah. the Hudson Bay Company. And the Bay had their little ticket window at the very back of the store. You had to go all the way through the store, and yep. and you had to yep. wait in line and buy those tickets. And, you know, that's probably one of the most frustrating things as a punter, a, a concert goer, um, today is that, you know, you, you wait online and you, you punch in as fast as you possibly can. And when you buy your tickets, you're in like the third level nosebleeds or something. And you've been right. sitting there waiting to call very first, but all the tickets are gone by the time you get in. So Yeah, it's crazy. It's a fast moving game now. Yeah, it sure um, is. So, yeah, so that was kind of my first exposure to a live concert. And that was a good one to do. Um, you know, in the arena, I had no idea what all that stuff was hanging over the stage. And my first thought was like, well, how does that get there every day? And did they bring that in? And how that, how much time does that take? Are they here yesterday? And does this, all the, the things started. And I kind of was like completely fascinated with the roof more than the stage. I still wonder all those things, Seth. Launched it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, um, so you walk into a concert and the first thing that grabbed your, your attention was the lighting rig. Yeah, it kind of was. I should have known right then, but I was like, whoa, what is all that stuff? Because yeah. that wasn't there when I was there last week for the hockey game. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wild. That's interesting. And that was that was Steve Cohen back then as well, right? He's been doing Billy Joel Steve, forever. Yeah. yeah. We both should have known Kismet, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no yeah. idea at the time. Yeah. I didn't know who Steve Cohen was. But, right. Um, that was what I was watching. And, I mean, he was in his prime then. That was a conventional rig and him dancing an Avo better than anybody I've ever seen. And <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I do mean dance. Yeah. <laughs> he gets going. <laughs> so how did, uh, how did like, did that impact you when you walked out of the show the next morning when you woke up, did you suddenly change direction oh, in your mind? Well, I don't know if I really had a direction even then, but I was immediately started going, all right, I got to figure this out. I got to know what all this stuff was. And I've, I've got to know where I find these things. And I, I was working in the high school theater department, as everybody does. Right. And I was, like, digging through the closets going, well, this looks like I could be repaired. And then we'd have another light. And I <laughs> just yeah. kind of dove in, not knowing anything. Just yeah. Like, okay, the gel things. Okay, that changes the color. All right, great. And off to the races. Yeah. Um, uh, it was a it was a fun little exploration, and we had nothing to work with, so this was all kind of however I could hodgepodge together, and 
I've heard so many of these podcasts where people talk about the same thing, you know, porcelain lamp bases and, and a coffee can, and you're you're ready to well, go. A pineapple can. <laughs> Paul Dexter, I, I'll never forget his story about, you know, cutting up pineapple cans and making them into par lamps or par fixtures. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. But that's the business. You do what you do. That's the business back then. I mean, then. I built I mean, my first lighting board was a big plywood box with a bunch of household dimmers and plugs to match on the back side and this wad of a orange extension cord. It's like, <laughs> yes, I have a lighting system. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. And so did you suddenly become addicted to going to concerts too? Like, were you going to see other shows oh, yeah. to get more of an impact yeah, and would, to build your repertoire? Yeah, I started, to become, I started to become really fascinated with ones that were doing light shows so like i don't know that i necessarily gravitated immediately to the music of genesis but i heard about this light show and then became a fan of the music it was all kind of directed that way that's how i found a lot of these acts it's like oh i've got to see that show because once i learned what the word verilite was it was like if they if i heard they had verilites i have to go see that you wow. know <laughs> Wow. And how that would direct your... It was, it was your, truly uh, an obsessive nerd, yeah. <laughs> that would direct your future in a big way, too, I guess, huh? Yeah, big time. And so yeah, what, that was what was your first step towards trying to make a, make a job or make a living out of this? Well, um, it was kind of a twofold solution because I had to learn something about this business and I had to learn about the gear and I had to learn... I knew nothing. I didn't even know what Alico was. I was just... It was all just whatever I could get my hands on, well, make that work. So I knew I had to learn about what the industry was about. And also I had to satisfy my family and, you know, have something of a college degree. So I opted for theater school, but I was really deliberate about which one I picked. Um, I chose Webster University in St. Louis because it was what they called a conservatory. So therefore, you were going in as a lighting design major. You were only going to do technical stuff. It was just a tiny bit of the acting thing, which I wanted nothing to do with, didn't want to waste my time with. So you would only take certain courses that were geared to teach designers what actors do rather than having to take all these other things. I so see. it's a really focused program. And so I was like, all right, that's what I need. So off I went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, little did you know that that was going to, again, kind of direct things in your future as well. Yeah, yeah, you've kind of gone full circle with that. So I, I don't know when, but I, I remember reading a story about you, and I'm not sure if this is where it fit into the timeline or if it was much, much later, but you started sort of uh, an obsession with writing letters to lighting designers <laughs> at some point. Yes. And yeah, Brickman even still Brickman brought it up in his podcast. I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's still so Mark, we're talking about this." Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, it was. Um, so, what was your idea there? Yeah, was just to well, I had gotten when I got to Webster, um, the the dean of fine arts, who was also the light. Actually, wasn't even the dean at that point, but the guy that ran and developed the conservatory program and taught lighting design, Peter Sargent, who just recently passed away. Um, he had managed to coerce the university into doing subscriptions in their library to all of the trade magazines that there were at that time, which was well, two theater crafts <laughs> and lighting dimension. Yeah. And he, you know, knew that of, of my obsession with the concert side of life. So he's like, well, I don't have anything to teach you about that specifically, but go to the library, find this section. I'm sure nobody's even looked at them, but they're there. And so I would dig through these magazines every chance I got and discover 
names like Jeff Rabbits and Mark Brickman. Oh, okay, and here's the products, and here's the hardware. So I'd just pour over those things any minute I had that was free. Um, and that's where I discovered those names. And then I was just like, well, let's figure out how to reach out to them and say, you know, how do I get a job? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or how did you get started or any number of things. And, and uh, did you find that people were reach back? <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I was going to ask. Did you find that people were were fairly responsive to that? Because I know that you know another thing that I've discovered in this industry, especially doing this podcast, has has been a real eye opener for me. Is how willing people are to share their time and to not only sit and talk to me for an hour or two on this podcast, but also to mentor uh, you know younger designers or wannabe designers who want to get into the business. Yeah, the, I mean, the cool thing about it at that time was that there really wasn't any kind of inroads. There was really no official industry. It was still really cowboy at that point. Right. But um, but everybody was really gracious. And remember, this is letter writing. This isn't emails. This isn't a quick answer. You have to take the time to write the letter, stamp the letter, return it, all of that. So they were incredibly gracious. Rabbits was uh, right away was trying to find opportunities to plug me in here and there. Um, you know, when I went to my, I guess it was my second LDI, he put me in his little posse. So we got to see all the toys that weren't on the floor right. and, uh, and, you know, like Cohen responded and gave me a phone call. I was like, any chance, you know, just keep in touch. Let's figure something out. And then of course, Brickman responded. He called from London, which I just thought was the coolest thing. Having not even been out of the country yet. Like, wow, this yeah. guy called me from London. You know? Did you ever ask so, them why, why they responded? You know, I didn't actually. <laughs> because it, it, it's a great question, though, when you think about it. Because you know, a Why guy would you like call this idiot kid in in the Midwest. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you what, I do it all the time too, though. Like when I have a a uh, theater student or a young designer or whatever reach out to me, unless they're asking for free equipment, then it's usually just a canned response. But if it's yeah. if it's uh, if they have legitimate questions about direction of their career or, you know, how do I do this? Or would you help me with this? I always, always, always share my time with them. Always. I mean, yeah, it was, it was incredible of them to do it. Like I said, these people were still touring people at that point. Right. But, um, you know, Jeff was probably the one that made the most sense in that element because he and Jim Moody were starting that first evolution of a company. Yeah. So they were building Moody Rabbit's design partners and he really wanted training and internships to be a part of it. I was just about a year or two early. They weren't ready for that yet. So, but he was gracious enough. I mean, I got to go spend a day on the Springsteen tour and there's all sorts of little things that just blew my brain wide open. Yeah. So, I read about that is. in your it's book. Gracious thing. I, I was so, uh, uh, you know, I, that just made me smile when I read about that in your book. Cause Jeff is a great guy. That's always been so, uh, open with sharing his time and stuff. But, you know, just to read that he actually took you to a show with him and walked around the show with you as as his intern. And, um, you know, you spent a day with him at Bruce Springsteen and stuff. That's just those are cool stories. Yeah, and That's, I never at the time I didn't it didn't totally weigh on me that I was seeing the VL5 before anybody else had seen the VL5. Right. It didn't really connect with me later to look back and go, what on earth? How yeah. in the world did that? I end up in that room. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and you weren't even a designer yet, were you? Like, weren't you no, still no, just a, a guy dude. who had seen yeah. a couple concerts and you're in college and you don't yeah, even have I a gig yet? Yeah, I was in college yet. and 
Yeah, I was. I had barely just gotten past Fresnel, you know, and this yeah. is all just pouring on me. That's, that's cool, though, that you had the the drive and desire and passion to write those letters because it obviously made an impact on them, but certainly on your career and your direction. And yeah, it was. Else. It, it was really weird because the obsession was always the concert side of the business too. It wasn't just lighting. I mean, theater was a tool and a way and an, and a good base. But I never got all amped up about the theater. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy it. I like it. I've lit in it. I've worked in it. But that was never, it was always this side of the of the vein that was drawing me in a weird way. Like, now, you just said the word the theater. Much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> yeah. You, you just said theater and the theater. And it reminded me of something I read in your book over the weekend. And I have to confess, at 55 years old and having been in this business as long as I have, I always wondered why theater was spelled two different ways. and The R-E-E-R thing. Yeah. yeah, I never asked anyone that question. And I read it in your book that, and I was like, well, that's totally sensible. You know, and that, I may no be a, that may be a complete urban legend, but I've heard it from several people, so I'm going with it. So, E-R is the building and R-E is the craft. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for those listening, you know, exactly what Seth just said. If you're talking about the theater, the building that you're hanging lights in, it's spelled E-R. And the, the art of theater, the craft of theater is R-E. And so, you know, if you say I'm in theater, it's R-E. If you say I'm in the theater, I'll call you back later. That's E-R, right? Right, yeah. And I had no idea. I mean, I was like, duh, (laughs) what an idiot. I've been in this business that long and I had no idea. So thank you for that. I may be completely wrong, but I've heard that in so many places that it makes sense. I mean, somebody from Yale may call and admonish me and say, you're completely wrong, but uh, that it works. Listen, <laughs> who cares? We're on Geezers of Gear. It must be true. You know, if we, said, right. it, if we said it, it's real. That's it. So, uh, so how, tell me how you made your first money. Like how did, you're still in school. You haven't made any money. You're writing letters to these designers and creating this huge career in front of you but you're still in school and you're not making any money. So how did that happen? How'd you take that step? Well, at the time, uh, there was really one lighting production company in town. Um, It was a company called Aries Company, run by a guy named Fred Barrera. And when I bought my first uh, lighting system, six par 38s, two trees, and a leprechaun six channel, um, (laughs) which I thought was as big as a rock rig, Yeah. Uh, he started talking to me and I guess he just saw, boy, you're kind of crazy. This is really interesting. He said, do you want to do some jobs for me? And I was like, anything, anything, anything. So they were very glamorous jobs, you know, building decks and pushing cases and working a fashion show or two that they put in the mall after hours. But it was, okay, I'm in it. There's gear, there's things going up, there's things going in cases, there's things going out the door. I'm getting the vibe of how this works. Um... And then that progressed to uh, a very large church that I was attending that decided it was time to do the big Easter spectacle. And that's when I really got my playground. Um, You know, there was money for lights. There was money for camels. I mean, it was that kind of thing. (laughs) So Easter was a huge deal. There was going to be a stone rolling away. There was going to be a smoke machine and anything else I could cram in the room. It's funny, but I've I've never heard a church budget being explained as there was money for camels. 
So uh, you got to pay for the camels. Yeah. There's herders for yeah. the camels. <laughs> makes makes perfect sense. Again, There's something handlers. I just never thought of. Yeah. Yeah. No, we had a sheep handler. I mean, you know, we had it all going. It was yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, when we um, when we get to your book in a little bit, it, it's funny because I I took a bunch of notes as I was going through it because I just thought there were some really great anecdotes and some really great pointers being given, and one of them was exactly what we're talking about now that by working in churches and starting in churches, they have budgets to put together real concert-like lighting rigs. It wasn't yeah, always like ever. that. Yeah, it wasn't always yeah. like that, but it certainly is now. So it's a great learning ground. Yeah, it really is. And in this situation, um, I think I tell the story in the book that VL1s were available without the operator at that point because they were basically sitting on shelves, so they just made a little box that let them speak DMX, and you could rent them, um, with the caveat that here's some extra spares because they'll break on you, and we don't have time to show you how to fix them, so just put a spare in. And so I was able to do that, and programming on a little uh, ETC Express or Impression, I forgot which one it was, but literally you had a handle for pan, handle for tilt, handle for color because there was no mixing it was just color and the two gobos that were in the one and there you go so each light had five or six faders and you would just program as two scene presets <laughs> and make this it took, it took forever yeah i would not have that kind of energy today no. um but that really opened it up it was like okay but going back to how I got really in the game, from that I got a job at Verilite Nashville because I think they were just astonished I didn't blow myself or their gear up. Yeah. Um, well, and I had and actually read to them working. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I actually read that you were one of the few people who was man uh, able to manage to keep those lights working. You know that they were so was, hard to keep a, a full rig of VL ones working, and you had no trouble with it. Yeah, too dumb to know better. Grace of God, I don't know how you want to look at it, but it really, <laughs> looking back now, it's like, I don't even know how that happened. I yeah. mean, knowing the amount of labor that those things took um, to keep them aligned and to keep the color systems working. I mean, when I toured with them, I had the hood off every morning on all of them just to realign the color systems before they went in the air. Right. Um, so it is kind of astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> but so at, at um, VL, you were, door, you were still not going out on shows or anything. You were probably, you know, sweeping the shop and fixing lights, right? Yeah. They would send me out on like Amway shows or okay. little convention ear things that didn't really have the budgets for anything other than VL ones. You know, the 200 system was still a prized thing at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a big tour would have been 18 or 20 lights. I mean, that was like what Winona was doing at that time in the Juds. So that was the big account. Um, and, but, you know, so here's the pile of VL1 stuff in the corner, and then that's how we, we worked that through. Yeah. And there I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you became kind of known as the VL1 guy on sort of its last yeah. legs, right? It was definitely the last leg. Yeah. Everybody knew that the VL6 was going to get out in another year, and so all we had to do is baby these things through to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's wild. So, you know, you built that part of your career based on just taking sort of a clunky old light and keeping it working and getting the most out of it. But to you, that was the highest technology 
that you knew at that time, right? So how did you know? Well, yeah, you know, I had watched the video of the Genesis Mama tour for, well, till the VHS tape wore out. So yeah. to me, I was like, I'm using the same stuff that was good enough for them. We're, I'm fine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so did, did that VL shop gig, did that turn into any interesting opportunities or shows or maybe a tour? How did, how did the, it, yeah, the, it really opened the door. I wasn't actually in the shop very long, um, just through, uh, the fact of desperate need of personnel. And so a, a lady named Valerie Groth, who at that time was designing Kenny G, who was the biggest thing going, that was in the period of breathless. I mean, nobody had ever imagined that an instrumentalist would sell 16 million records. That was like so the mid nineties, right? Heyday and she was the designer. Hmm? Mid nineties, right? Yeah. Early mid. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so she was picking up other design clients, and one of them was this country act, Lori Morgan. And she came in the shop, and that was the heyday of the IntelliBeam, and she just was flat out to her production people, I will not use those. That right. has no elegance. That has no style. Um, you know, she, she, so I was like, but the VL ones do. Uh, okay. But I wasn't arguing. So yeah. <laughs> she put the VL ones out there, and off I went because there was nobody else. And there's nobody else that could do it. Right. Um, so off I got my first tour. And that progressed, and Lori exploded. There was a whole convolution of things, because Lori exploded career-wise during that first tour. The VL6 came online in the middle of it, and they wanted those VL1, Verilite wanted the VL1s out of there. So I ended up having the 6s very, very early in the process, maybe the first four acts that got them. Mm-hmm. Um and then as a result, because of that, they had to fast track me through training to get me up to speed because that was on the artisan and that was a whole new system. And so I kind of just leaped right over a whole bunch of years that I probably should have done in the trenches and just landed. <laughs> hey, here I am. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then forget about the first time I went down to Verilite, you know, on Regal Row, I was like walking into, oh, my gosh, this is really verilite <laughs> yeah that's so yeah but what um, what do you attribute you know let's call it that early success so you know again straight out of basically theater school um a little bit of getting your feet wet in a church and all of a sudden you're working for verilite you know that to me is a is a pretty radical career jump right and so mm-hmm. was that down to just really good work ethic and and you know <laughs> Constantly it, it, doing the it, things it, other people didn't want to, perhaps? Yeah, I think what it was was just a, there was a general enthusiasm yeah. that, you know, anybody that was around me then knows I was just obsessed. Yeah. Um, I could talk about any tour, any crew guy. I knew everything about the industry from the minute it started. And, um, I mean, it's so bad. There's a, a rigger who's been around. He's a brilliant guy named Bill Ringstill, and he and I would sit in the back of the bus a lot of times and play this weird sort of high nerd trivia where we would go, all right, and this tour in 82, who was the vendor or who was the production manager? We'd seriously do this. I, oh, that's I know so we're funny. weird. That's funny. But we were that obsessed about the business and wanting to be a part of it. Yeah. And so I think that drove it a lot. And then you could not work me. Um, I just, you just couldn't. I was, I, at one point I had convinced uh, Arthur Smith, who ran Bear Light Nashville, to sign me out of key so I could stay after hours and work on the desk and, and learn it and <laughs> get better at it. I would just great. hook a couple of lights up in the shop and I'd stay there for hours. Yeah. So it's, 
That's I, I was going to get over that hump and get in the game. Yeah. So do you still have every issue of lighting dimensions that was ever made? <laughs> no, I wish I did actually. Cause I, I copied a bunch of pages out of that that had all these old articles and I don't think they're online. I would love to go back and see some of those. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, they used to, I had everybody's kind of cataloged. It's like, here's the Jeff rabbits pile and here's the Cohen pile and here's, yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> That's hilarious. So you went out with Lori Morgan, and what was your what was your position on that tour? I started out as the VL guy. I programmed and teched and did everything. And then little by little, as the thing kept getting bigger, my um, theatrical sensibilities paid off, and I started moving into more of the lighting director chair. And then it really turned uh, when she had decided that she was going to make a, a very big investment in what she was doing. And she hired Kenny Ortega to craft her show. You know, I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, Michael Jackson's Michael guy Jackson's is going to do guy, this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so Kenny came in um, with Michael Cotton as the set designer. And then I just sort of tumbled and fell right over into the lighting design role because I was standing there and because I could talk theater. And they were all about that. And the three of us put together the next year's tour and then the following year it was just me and Kenny and I just did it all. And it just kind of shroomp. Yeah. <laughs> right. <up. laughs> yeah. That's cool. Learned a lot from that guy, man. Yeah. Kenny Ortega is, is a genius. Yeah. Just an absolute genius. Yes, he is. <clears throat> so that being your first, mm-hmm. I guess, client, were you still working for Verilite or were you now, it transitioned somewhere like the second or third year. It, it it moved to where I was just completely with her and would just pick up an occasional VL thing on the side, but I wasn't working for them anymore. I see. I see. So and, it kind of progressed. Yeah. So where'd you go from there? Lori uh, Morgan. The next one? Uh, I did a couple of smaller tours in between. Um, there was a big Christian artist named Carmen who I took because it was a chance to do a big arena show. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got to do it. So even though I was leaving Lori at that point, I needed to kind of step out or stay forever kind of thing at that point. And so I said, you know, I think it's time I just put an operator in here and I need to go on and do some other things. And so I did that to her and got my arena chops up. And then Valerie called again and said, uh, come program for me for Kenny G. Oh, well, this will be cool. A couple of weeks, no big deal. She tricked me. she was making her exit and didn't tell me what she was up to nor did she tell anybody else in the organization what she was up to but her thought was if I can get him in here and get him to know everybody then I I can sell this and I can step off and he'll take care of it and quietly replacing herself yeah yeah Yeah. she wanted to get off the road she had a young son and it was time to be mom and she knew that if she just handed it off to anybody that the organization was so tight and Kenny was so uh, ingrained with the crew and the band and everybody. She's like, it'll never work just to bring a stranger in, but if it brings somebody in and get them to know everybody and then peel away, it'll work. And uh, so that was probably around 95, 96, right? That was tail end of 96, starting into what would be a three year tour, 97, 96, wow. 97, 98. Wow. Wow. That's a great way to start. <laughs> with uh, it was Kenny something I, from yeah. zero to 60 because yeah. the Kenny G organization at that time was all the heavy hitters. I mean, 
We had Chris Littleton tour managing who would just finish the Eagles and would go on to Madonna and Shania and everybody else. And Chris Lamb was out there for a time. And it just went on and on and on, the quality of people that were in that camp. And I was just sucking it in, you know, (laughs) unreal. And you're going all over the globe, which was all brand new. What a killer opportunity. Yeah, I I did turn around after about five years and go, what happened? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, huh? Were there ever times, though, when you felt like you were in over your head? Oh, constantly. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Especially in the Kenny camp, because I came into there at 26 years old, and most of them were in their early 40s at that time, and had had 10, 15 years on the road, and I had had, you know, 10 minutes. Um, So I had to kind of play a good face a lot where it's like, okay, advance the show. How do I do that? How do I talk to a lighting vendor in Malaysia? Um, you know, so there was, there was a lot of the little learning curve along the way. And, and I just kind of just stay focused, stay professional, do your job, ask questions when you need to and go. Was your approach and, typically uh, though to say yes and, and then figure it out or oh, was absolutely. it to say, I have no clue. <laughs> That's kind of been my whole story. Yeah. yeah. Just say yes. Yeah. and then go figure it out. Yeah, I love that. It makes approach. a difference. Yeah, we we talked uh I had uh Cosmo Wilson last week and we talked a lot about that where he did an awful lot of that in his career as well. Say yes and then you know, go figure out how to get to that yes basically. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it just comes back to a lot of it's going to mean more hard work, more learning. You know, I mean, it's just you just keep hard at it and focused and, yeah. and keep pushing through uh and it gets there and and by the time kenny had wrapped back into the united states which was arguably a year and a half into the thing when we did another run through the states i had gotten past all of the the questioning from my age or my experience or anything else and i had all of this team behind me because they'd watched me pull this off in all these different countries so, you know, when the U.S. crew came back and they're like, oh, we can tease the kid. It was like, no, that's done now. You don't get to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I got Chris Lambstead behind me saying no. Yeah. You know? <laughs> You're a grown up now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when did... Think, uh... We had so many. I mean, it was amazing. I'll just say, you know, like like Chopper Borges was with us most of the time. Lamb some of the time. Parnelli was out there for a bit. It, it just... It was crazy, the quality of people that were on that tour. Why was that? Uh, It was a good gig. It paid well. He treated everybody very, very graciously, you know, in terms of flights, in terms of hotels, and, you know, just nice little events that he would put together. It was just, like I said, you know, it was making a lot of money at that point and wasn't a really oversized production. So a lot of these guys saw it as a in-between-the-big-tours I can go do this for a couple of weeks and just have a really nice time. Yeah. And it was always a good time. Yeah. James Taylor was always yeah. like that too, right? Where the band stayed or the, the crew stayed in the same hotel as the band and they were yep. really nice, Absolutely. comfortable tours. Yeah. Yeah. So, which also is a catch twenty two too, because I was spoiled at that point. It's like, <laughs> yeah. They're not all like this. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a learning experience it was to go out with, you know, somebody else after that. And, and, uh, <laughs> It hurt a little bit. Nine, yeah. <laughs> nine guys on a bus or something, you know? Yeah. So um, so at some point here is when you got into Barry Manilow as well, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, that was shortly after that. I forgot how that one came about. It was a tour manager. I think it was one of the, believe it or not, I think it was one of those letters again that had gotten thrown in a file years before when I didn't really have any experience and just sent letters to every manager in the world. Yeah. And where he pulled that out and then at that point knew some people on Kenny G. And so he called me up to come fill in for three shows. That was 1998. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still there. And you haven't left. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where the other guy is, but he better hurry back. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's, that's really cool. I, I always talk about that on, on this podcast where, you know, that's what, 22 years you've been with Barry Manilow and this is not an industry, you know, founded on longevity. Sometimes you're in for one gig and gone, let alone a full tour. Mm -hmm. And so to stay with an artist for 22 years means something. It means that, you know, a, you're probably a, a easy guy to deal with. You're, you're not, you know, a complicated, difficult person who's constantly, you know, you're not a prima donna necessarily. And um, you do good work, obviously. So, you know, at 22 years with, with one artist. Is is Barry Manilow tough or is he pretty easy to work with? How does, I mean, he's, you're part of the family now, a, I guess. He's actually, I mean, he's, personally, he's a wonderfully kind guy. He's, he's very nice and uh, has a good sense of humor about him, but he's incredibly the consummate showman. Um, yeah. His perfectionism, his attention to detail, um, it, um, it can exhaust you. Um, you've got to keep up with him. And he, um, if he senses fear <laughs> yeah. or senses weakness or uh, not quite focused, uh, he'll pounce. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, he needs you to be as focused as he is. And I never really got it for years until I forgot, maybe this is only four or five years ago we were talking and he, he said something about, you know, he was lamenting the fact that the production rehearsal period was over and he, now he had to get on stage and do it. He loves the creative process so much and is so into light cues and sound things and That's changing cool. little bits of an arrangement. And I mean, he loves it. And then he's the like, opposite oh, of most artists. Show. Right? Yeah, exactly. Now he's like, I gotta go do the show now. Yeah. And what he reminded me of, which I never thought of as a designer is that when it all starts to happen, then it's all on him. He's the one who has to go out there by himself alone, carry the show, remember the lyrics, remember what he's doing. Um, and nobody else has that experience. We all kind of hide in the dark. Um, and can blame it on technology or whatever if something goes awry. Yeah. But, you know, he's out there alone and full face. And I kind of got a new appreciation for what an artist goes through in their own head in those times when you get frustrated. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're being this way. Yeah. Well, well there's a reason for that. I, I also and you're read, there to support them. Yeah, I read in your book somewhere that um, he would also, at some point during uh, production rehearsals or programming or whatever, he would sit in the house and you would have to go through every cue and he would basically critique every single cue and it, it could take days to go through it. Yeah. It, yeah. It was usually, I mean, we still do it. Um, it's not quite been to the length that it had been at various times because the shows aren't as complex, but uh, you know, he would, we would have a stand in, we would have a full follow spot call. We would have crew guys sitting in band positions because, you know, what I, another thing I learned from that is, is that musicians, by and large, are not 
attuned visually. Um, you know, their whole world operates in how they hear. So yeah. to tell an artist, well, you'll be in spotlight right now. Well, we understand that perfectly. Like, of course, we know what that'll be. You'll be lit. You'll have the right balance. The, they don't see that. They see a shadow in the dark while everything behind them is lit. And so it became the point. It's like, nope, we got to have people sitting in the band positions. We got it's got to look like the show, even down to the color of the stand-in's hair, to make sure that he had a clear visual picture of what that audience is going to see. And also, he used it as a learning tool for himself. He would often discover in that process, like, you know, if I went over there at this moment, that would be stronger because of what you've got going on here. It was a collaborative thing. It was. It wasn't just you know, whipping you in the back of the head saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Yeah. It was an evolution, and it was part of his process. But yeah, it could be long. <laughs> well, <and laughs> the, it, the, nickname, well, the nickname for it was Pizza Night. It makes it sound like a jovial, fun time. Uh, it was not. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> for them it was. They would all sit in the back with pizza and laugh and make jokes and then change things and want to see something again. And right. We're all slaving away right. on two hours sleep. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and at some point he transitioned into a, a residency, right? Yeah, it was, um, right after the first farewell tour, um, <laughs> in 05, he, he finished that tour. It was the last arena run. We're never doing that again. <clears throat> um, <laughs> and then he went to the Las Vegas Hilton for a residency that was supposed to be one year, ended up being five. Oh. And then he immediately moved from there to Paris for two more, and now he's back at, well, what is now the Westgate in his second year. So he's racking up the Vegas time. Yeah, that's that's cool. And he's got to be, what, in his 70s now, right? Yeah, he's mid-70s. Wow, wow. Well, that's, so, sort, of the, that's you know, sort of the new 40s in performance years or whatever. Apparently, right? they all keep going. They've yeah, all had incredible. umpteen farewells. <laughs> yeah. No, it's incredible. You know, I mean, I was talking about this last week with Cosmo, but seeing guys like Steven Tyler in his 70s and Mick Jagger and, and uh, you know, I mean, it's it's awesome. It is awesome seeing some of these guys still performing. And then there's some that you wish would kind of hang it up, you know, and they may not even yeah. be in their 70s. They might be in their 50s and 60s and they don't sound <laughs> like they used to. So it's true. Yeah. Some of these shows I can't get too excited about going and seeing. And then other ones, you know, again, like Steven Tyler still sings and sounds and looks like a rock star, even though he's in his seventies. So, uh, yeah. So Don Henley is another one that's interesting to me because, uh -huh. um, he again, seems to me like a guy that might be really difficult to work with and very, uh, not opinionated, but very much into his show. Like he's not a guy that's going to stand back and go, oh, whatever you think, Seth, and just walk in when it's all done and perform. Or, or is he? Do I have him wrong? No, 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 no. The thing about Don is I mean, Hanley's a visual guy um, more than most, and he's an incredibly educated guy. He's very literate, and he has a, a wealth of things to pull from, um, which makes it sort of closes the pool down of who can talk to him. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Cohen has a long history with him. Uh, I did that one period of solo work with him, but it's gotta be somebody that can go with him. If he wants to talk about Euripides or he wants to reference an artist, you better be on your game to be able to respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, Cause he does see visually and he understands literature and all of his involvement with Walden and everything else. 
I I love talking to him. I just his mind just I'm so impressed by how he puts things together in his head and this kind of confident sense of humor that he has that's that's really dry but absolutely slaving. It's just <laughs> yeah. he's good. So, um but yeah, he he can be difficult because, you know, he will deal with the minutia. Yeah. And I think the Manilow time actually really prepared me for that because I was used to that kind of work style. He was not hands-off. He was very specific about color. Uh, he had a conceptual sense about that particular tour and the kind of color that it would be. And you couldn't just go, I'm going to do pink, I'm going to do blue, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that song and this one. No, no, no. There was a progression of thought in terms of saturation, and all of that was in his head. And so you had to you had to go with that. And and what, he would what, not, what period of time was this, though, Seth? Like, where was he in his solo 2000s. career? Yeah, it was early 2000s, I think. I think well, the the first incarnation of it wasn't the last solo record that time before. Uh, yeah, it would have been 2000. Started, and then it finished up about... My tenure finished up when the Eagles kicked off again in 03, I believe. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I've been looking through sort of your archives of pictures and stuff, and, and uh, I saw some of those shows, and just really, really great-looking shows, so... It seems like that collaboration with him worked out. I actually, uh, I provided some lighting to um, Steve Cohen for one of the Eagles tours that started in uh, Moscow, and we were staying in the same hotel with the with the band, and and uh, I went over there for the uh, for the final production rehearsals and rehearsals and the start of the tour in Moscow, and uh, I had breakfast with Don Hanley one morning because. I don't know. We just both happened to be in the restaurant at the same time and had breakfast together. And it was such an interesting breakfast. Like you said, just a brilliant guy and talking about some of the history of, of Moscow and, you know, just educating me. Like I felt Which like I was I'm sure he had researched thoroughly before he went yeah, over there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the sad thing at that time though, was that, uh, as I recall, and I don't want to step out of line here, but as I recall, each of the members of the band had their own manager with them. Uh, along with uh, Irving Azoff, and um, and they all rode to the venue in separate vans. Oh, <laughs> and it, so it was like you know all separate camps that came together on stage every night, and it, it just seemed so dysfunctional. But then as soon as they hit the first note, it was just you know a symphony. It was beautiful. They sing yeah. so well together. Yeah, I mean, they they just uh, they had a, a science to the music, that's for sure. But they just couldn't get along for some reason. So, yeah, yeah, it's. I think they've settled a lot, you know, and, yeah. and over the years, you know, yeah. and with the loss of Glenn and everything, it kind of yeah. Okay, maybe we don't need to mess with all the minors anymore, and let's yeah. just let's just do this. Age, and they still keep going. Solves a lot of things. <laughs> time time solves a lot of things for sure. So um, Toby Keith is another one that has become a very, very long-term relationship for you and a long-term client. Uh, You know, again, must be uh, it must say something about you and your ability to not only keep them happy with fresh new designs and and a great look and everything else, but just that you're um, someone that, you know, is able to get along with the artist for that period of time. So, yeah, and I think, too, I think, too, though, the industry has changed. I was lucky enough to get in on the tail end of, of, of one version of the industry. And you could still do that, where you could have these long-term client 
list, and there was still about, you know, tours and albums and things. And it seems different to me now. It seems like a lot of times there isn't a lot of that kind of loyalty established, that kind of in-the-trenches-together mentality that carries you from tour to tour to tour. Yeah. Uh, Because I see the turnover happen a lot now. I mean, Nashville, for example, runs so fast. You know, it's like you throw one tour out, and then the next tour is like, oh, look at this shiny thing over here. Let's hire that guy. Yeah. well, is it's, that, a, it's a different it's a different community now. Is it like these 360 deals though that cause that? You know where, uh, you know it might be Live Nation calling all the shots or whoever the promoter is calling all the shots, and they're hiring their group of people or they're demanding their group of people or whatever because there's a safety factor. I don't know. Is is that got something I to think, do with it? I think some of that is, is is a part of it. I think the biggest thing is is that artists don't climb up anymore. They get shot out of the cannon. Right. So they don't have those smaller tours when it's five crew guys and the band and you, and everybody's going through that experience together of getting bigger and bigger and bigger and becoming a success. And, you know, that's where those longevity relationships come from because then if somebody comes at them with the big shiny penny like a live nation, you know, an artist that's come up that way, it's like, I'm not letting go of my people. There's no way. That's so um, true, and it's funny because I won't mention any names, but a designer said to me, it had to be, I don't know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago when he said this to me, um, but Taylor Swift had just gotten hot, just started getting really hot at that time, and um, and this particular designer was doing some work with Taylor Swift and said to me, I, I said, how's that going or something? I asked him a question one day and said, hey, how you doing on such and such? And he said, Marcel, you know, I know people have always said Madonna's really tough to work for. She is, you know, a saint compared to this woman or this girl. (laughs) And uh, that, you know, she was by far the most complicated person he'd ever worked for. And it was for similar reasons, because she was that hot that quickly and didn't work her way up. So I, I never thought of it like that. But that's a very great uh, sort of thought of how. Things are different today. Yeah, and I don't even think that it really is reflection on the artist. It's just the the way it works in those situations. I mean, Carrie Underwood's a perfect example. I started with her 10 minutes after she won American Idol. And we got going and we got going so fast. And then took some time off. And when the next year came around, the organization wanted a fresh idea, which is totally fair and legitimate. And it wasn't Carrie being mean or anything. She was lovely to work with. And from everything I hear, she still is, but that's just how that different era of music worked. You know, they shot them out of the cannon after American Idol and you're just biding your time to you're in your own arena show and boom. And you know, I mean, I think there's been a different design team and a different creative director every tour, which is totally legitimate choice. I mean, it's nothing negative. It's just, but that's how those people work. She didn't play for years in the honky tonk yeah. with the same core people in the same core. Uh, that's a great collective. point. Great, great point. And I mean, you know, most of these bands did like most of the bands that, you know, I'll say you and I grew up with because I'm even older than you, but um, most of those acts or performers or artists did work their way through years of clubs and then into small uh, venues that are a little bit larger than clubs and then small theaters and then small amphitheaters. And, you know, next thing you know, they're in arenas, but 
they had a very different approach or attitude because they had worked through all of those layers, right? Yeah, and the tour sold the records. You yeah. know, the finances were completely different. Very different, yeah. yeah. So Toby Keith, I, yeah. I think you've been yeah. with him like 15 years or something, right? 2003, I think, oh. was my first year. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. And that one, that one was... Um, that was a, the the first one was kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. I had a good friend of mine, Jim Lenahan, who was working for their tour sponsor, Ford, was designing a set for them. And they had a lighting designer, and they also had a lighting director that had been with them forever and is still there. Um, so he was going to run the show and does a beautiful job of it. Bones is something. He's just amazing to watch. Right. Kind of like Cohen dancing at the QM. It's that sort of vibe. <laughs> um, but I was brought in through my golden at Bandit Lights because they were desperately looking for an LD that could handle the big jump in production, that they were moving from small little arenas and, and theaters to the, to the real deal, summer sheds and the whole bit, with the big sponsor money and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just got a call and fell in with them. And after all the dust settled from that first tour, they kind of shrunk their team a little bit as to who the creatives were that were involved. And then after the, when we did the next one, I was in the family and it's just carried on ever since. Wow. So yeah, I read in your book, and they're, uh, they're loyal to the team. My gosh, they're loyal people. I mean, yeah. we've barely changed vendors in all that time. Yeah. I love that about those acts, though, that, you know, it's, yeah. it's a family. Every year we're going back out on tour, and it's the family, you know. It's, you don't yeah, replace it's Memorial members Day of your family. You know, yeah. it's like he always rehearses right around Memorial Day, and it's like my little barbecue. It's like, oh, this is fun. We hang out, and we have a week of rehearsals, and we're not really yeah. too That's stressed, cool. and we all go out, and there you go. Yeah. Well, I did read in your book about um, the, uh, the fact that Ford – F-150 was his sponsor, and you always had to find creative ways to put a truck in the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they had to have a truck. And that's worse than that, my vendors got to the point where they were doing an upcharge, because not only did it have to be a Ford truck, it had to be the right truck down to, oh, no, we don't use that bumper anymore. We changed that on the last model, or that headlight frame isn't the right one. We, you've got to fix that. <laughs> Oh, so you didn't tour? You didn't tour with the truck? They rented one locally or borrowed it from a dealership? No, no, or something? no. It was it was always one time we had an actual physical truck. Um, oh, it was a was set a, piece a, that they built, though. Yeah, it's a set oh, piece. So it was a fiberglass. Oh, I thought it was just a truck that they pulled in on stage or whatever. Yeah, it was always a fiberglass cast of something—a oh. door, a hood, a, a, the tailgate, and then eventually to save money, believe it or not, this was cheaper. The uh, the fabricators actually just went out and bought the four truck, gutted it, and cut the thing in half, and then oh my god, <laughs> that out there. So there was all sorts of inventive ways to deal with it. I think All Access may have done that one where they cut the thing in half and just sent out with no guts and you know replaced the tire so there was no weight. And this, it's like you can't say it's not your proper branding now. Here yeah. it is, yeah. right off your lot. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that is that's wild. That had to be hard to do, to sit there and look at a brand new truck and go, okay, well, we got to cut it in half. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and that whole process was so challenging because that was a big part of however they cut their deals is that the Ford had to be a physical presence in the show. Yeah. So we did everything. You know, it was like one year we did a giant grill. One year we did the front of the truck. One year we did the back of the truck and he came out of the tailgate and 
another year we did both. Yeah. Uh, it just, yeah. eventually it ran its course and thank goodness. Cause I, I think I'm out of ideas on how to use a truck. That's funny. So. <laughs> so back to this thing, you know, where you've been with Toby Keith for so long, been with Barry Manilow so long. One of the things that really stuck with me in your book, and I, I can't eloquently remember exactly how you said it, but something to the effect that, um, you know, you may feel like part of the family, you may feel like they're your buddies, um, but you called it something else. And I forget what the word was that you used, but it made such perfect sense because, um, you know, they're not your close friends. They're, they're, you're there to serve them. And I think I said something about it being the office, they're your office buddies, office buddies. Yeah. Or work friends. Yeah. Work friends. I yeah. think you called it. Yeah. And it's very true. And I think one of the things that happens is, you know, certainly at times like Steve Cohen with, with, uh, with Billy, you know, they are friends. <laughs> that like, one gets its own category. Yeah, That's they're a friends. Whole other deal. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I've done a bunch of shows with Steve and Billy and the way they talk to each other, the way they just, you know, joke with each other and stuff, they really are truly buddies. And, you know, funny, quick, quick story. So Steve's birthday one year, he rented um, a restaurant in New York, a tiny restaurant, and uh, it was closed, you know, just for him and his, his birthday guests, which I was fortunate enough to be one of them. And so I think he said get there at 730 and I'm always early, you know, I, I just, it's the way I am. And so I got there at about seven ten or something and I walked in and went straight into the bar, tiny little bar and Billy Joel was sitting there. So it was me and Billy Joel <laughs> sitting there, you know, <laughs> waiting for the party to start and, uh, just pulled up a chair next to him. And I think he had just come out of rehab. So he wasn't drinking. He was having a glass of water or juice or something. And, uh, just sat there and had a funny little chat about Steve Cohen and just about life and the restaurant and whatever. And, and, uh, but yeah, he went to, he went to Steve's birthday party. So, but I, I really are, liked how you explained two are it. characters and they get, yeah. they feed off each other. They I've really had do. so many little, little encounters like that where it's like, I'm not even aware Billy's in the room until those two start cutting up. And it's like, Oh my gosh, Billy Joel's been sitting here the whole time. And it's like, eh, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> you know? That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Well, Billy's a fairly regular guy, considering what he's been doing for how long he's been doing it at the level he's right. been doing it. He's still a pretty regular, you know, Long Island kind of guy, you know. He's uh, very true. Such a nice guy, and and uh, what a life! I mean, Jesus. But um, but no, I just I loved how you explained that because I know so many designers who will say, "Oh yeah, he's my buddy," and you know, I'll be with him forever. But you know, then business happens and you're not so sure about that anymore. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a tough thing. I've, I too have known a lot of designers that have been personally wounded, you know, and, and I've had my moments. Sure. I mean, we yeah. all do where you start to kind of feed into that and believe that, that, that that's what's going on. But at the yeah. end of the day, you got to remember where your check is coming. Mm -hmm. That makes you an employee, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And as such, there is going to be a line there in your relationship. It's just, yeah. That's what it is. Well, on a much smaller scale, you know, I've been in business since I was pretty much, I don't know, 19, 20 years old. 
in a sense that like I didn't always own my own company, but even when I worked for a guitar store when I was 19 years old, I had guitar players who worked for me as salespeople. And they were my former clients and buddies and guys that I played in bands with and stuff. Now they're my employees and they're answering to me. And it was always a weird relationship because I still considered myself their good buddy, but they considered me their boss and treated me differently. And in mm-hmm. a sense, in a sense, kind of needed to, I guess, right? And so it created this sort of strange relationship where I just wanted to be like any other friend to them, but I couldn't because, you know, now I was no. their boss. So I get it. You know, it's very, uh, uh, very typical, I think, in any business where you're employing your buddies and, or you're in a, an environment where people become friendly and have dinners and meals together and travel on buses together and stay in the same hotels and stuff. So um, one of the other things that, that, you know, no matter what I've read about you or learned about you or know about you is that you have done a very good job from the very early days sending out those letters. You've done a great job um, creating and managing relationships in the industry. And Mm -hmm. whether they're people on tours with you or vendors or manufacturers um, you've done a really, really good job uh, managing and creating those relationships. And so that's obviously something that's very important to you, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I've always been so fascinated by this industry that once I got into a place where I could say I was really in it or even kind of up high in it, um, you know, I just still had the same emotion about it. It's like, I want to know everybody. I want to see what they're up to. I want to, you know, connect with these and do great work with these vendors and manufacturers and all of that sort of stuff. And as a result, it just kind of oozes out that that's, that's how you do that. You, you know, you make friends with these people, you go and see their products, you find ways to implement their products if you like what you see. And it's just, it's kind of a secular thing that keeps rolling around to, to, because that's how we all get better and that's how the industry keeps growing well but even down to like the people at the magazines you know you you in your book you named all these people who worked for lighting dimensions in the early days or you know whatever magazine and you always maintained good relationships with them because you said even though i was a brand new designer nobody needed to know that my article sat right next to peter morse's in the magazine or right next to you know steve cohen or whoever who had been doing it for years at a much higher level than me, but nobody needed to know that when they were reading the magazine, right? So, no, no exactly. Yeah, um, and I think that, you know, I think that's one of the the great things about you know the the trade papers, and now there's so many of them. Yeah. I mean, you've always got these opportunities to to get your stuff out there and, and get it seen and, yeah, and, and yeah. just let people know what you're up to and that, Hey, you're a part of this. Yeah. And I think that's more to the point. It's not the arrogance of, I've got a magazine story. Right. I, I don't see it that way. I think it's like, yeah, Hey, I'm up to this stuff and it's here's what I building. discovered and here's what I found. And look at all these great people that did a terrific work and that might sell more lights or that might get somebody another gig or you no, know, it's, all those kind of things. It's branding. You, you know, you're branding yourself, you're branding your work. And you have to do that. I mean, when you're in this business and um, people are out there reading these articles and deciding who to work with or deciding which designer to hire or whatever it is, you know, building your personal brand is important and building those relationships with the vendors. And, you know, you mentioned again in your book that I'm going to talk about here in a second, but you mentioned um, that 
you know, one of the things that you worked very hard on, it was all on purpose creating those relationships, but you knew that if you were out on tour and either had an idea for a new product or how to make a product better or whatever, you had those manufacturers' cell phone numbers and you could call up Joseph Valchar from Robe or, or Eric Loader or in the past Trolls. Um, you could call these people up and say, hey, you know, either A, I have a problem or B, uh, you know, I have an idea. And yeah. it's, it's important, I think, you know, uh, and I want to get into your book because, I, okay, so, you know, I keep mentioning this book. It's uh, by <laughs> Seth Jackson. It's called Concert Design, The Road, The Craft, The Industry. And first of all, is it out? Because I know I got an advanced it'll be, copy. It'll be out in, it'll be out in April. Um, the publisher was sending me a link where you could pre-order it from the publisher's website. I'll get that to you. You can put it on the website or... Yeah, yeah, uh, I'll uh, attach it to this podcast. But will it be available yeah, on I'll, Amazon I'll, and stuff as well or just through the publisher? Yeah, all that'll come sometime around mid-April. It'll be really up and flying. So. Right. So I will say, first and foremost, that, um, you know... Uh, totally unsolicited. Seth sent this to me without my asking for it. He said, Hey, by the way, since I'm coming on your podcast, you should probably check out my book. And he sent me an advanced copy. And by the way, there's lots of typos and stuff in it. I should mention. Um, I think that one wasn't fixed yet. Yeah. I well, think yeah, it hasn't no, gone you, through the last, you still had, you <laughs> still hope. had editing notes in it. So for sure it, it, uh, it, it wasn't finished. But, um, and it's literally a PDF copy of the book is what I got. So I read it on my iPad and, uh, first of all, I will say it was a very easy read. I read the entire book in a weekend and, um, finished it this morning at about eight o'clock. And, um, but more importantly, and I've actually already said this to a couple of people today, I think that every person leaving school with uh, the ambition or stars in their eyes to go out and do this as a career should have to read this book. And there's a lot of reasons why. One, it doesn't just tell you how to design a show. It tells you all the other stuff. You know, it tells you how to, who you should get along with on a tour, how to get along with those people. Um, bus etiquette, uh, how to deal with an artist, how that relationship should be managed with an artist, just all kinds of things. And I just think there's so much important information. It's a small and easy to read book. It doesn't go into huge detail. It doesn't tell you how to program a Grand MA3 console. It doesn't, you know, give you any of that stuff, but it just gives you sort of a broad brushstroke. This is the business that you're looking at getting into. This is sort of how I got into it. And these are some of the things that my education in this business can help you to sh sort of, you know, miss some of the, the bumps in the road that I had to go through. And, you know, bravo. I think it's a fantastic book because I have a pretty short attention span. So if you got into too much crazy detail, I probably would have skipped a lot of chapters and pages. But I read the whole book and I, I read it quickly. So good job. Oh, thank you very much. I'm yeah. glad you saw it that way. That's yeah. really what I was trying to do. You don't want me writing a programming book. Just no. trust me on that. Well, and you don't want me <laughs> reading a programming book. So I'm sure anyone <laughs> listening to this who knows me will agree. But so first of all, why a book? Um, it was the oddest thing. When I went back to teach at, at Webster University, my alma mater, um, 
you know, that we were trying to develop a program in, in concert and live entertainment as a sidebar to the theater education. Uh, and I'd say it was a, we had a 50-50% success. You know, it's something that if I did again, I would change some things as to how we structured it, but that's a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the short version is, is that they hired me, and I was on a, a trial period for tenure and full position, and somewhere in there they discovered he doesn't have a master's degree. And then my uh, the head of the program suggested, she said, well, why don't you write a book? If you could get a book published, then you would have published work, and we might be able to circumvent the fact you didn't finish your master's. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where it started, and I had about three attempts where it didn't work, and I just I couldn't, I gave it up and walked away from it. And then this last time, um, early last year, they, I thought the publisher was done with me, and then they reached out and said, you know, we'd still like to do this. Uh, well, you know what? Now's the time. And I had a kind of a, a space in my air, so to speak, to do it, and so I dove in and didn't really know what I was doing, but it just sort of evolved out of there kind of organically. Yeah. And what was the and then process? I immediately decided that I need everybody's opinions on this. So uh, that's when I started soliciting yeah. the 14, 15 people that could, man, they just came out of the woodwork. I was like, can you give me a couple of sentences? And people would just dump paragraph after paragraph. Yeah. They're like, this is so great. We got to put that in there. Yeah. So, you know, so what, what so was your process? Was, did you, did you talk to somebody who wrote it for you or, or did you actually type all the pages yourself? I typed the, the, the whole thing myself. I would just, wow. I had, had an approved um, chapter list from the publisher and uh, some general scope of where it was going to go. And then I had a whole series of deadlines that they had given me for how many pages need to be delivered when, and I just started writing. And when I hit a spot where um, I'd be like, boy, really cool. Like, for example, I said, I'd really love to have George Masick's opinion on this. And so I would email George and say, hey, can you talk about the relationship between manufacturers and, and designers? He said, you just hit the thing I love to talk about. And so yeah. then he gave me pages of stuff. Yeah, you know, I loved and it just kind of uh, kept progressing that way, yeah. you know? <laughs> I loved his, his write-up. And the Steve Cohen forward, you know, was, was very cool. I mean, you know, obviously coming from a guy that was the first show that you ever saw, the first live concert you ever saw, uh, it probably was a pretty proud moment to have him write the forward to your book. I guess it was great. And we've had so much history since then. You know, it, yeah. just, it just felt like a natural fit. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some of the things that I think were really important in the book and some I've already mentioned, like, for example, churches as a learning ground, you go into that in, in detail in the book, which I think is a really great point, And I think it's something that I had never thought of prior to this, but when young designers or young wannabe designers come to me, that is one piece of advice that I'm going to remember. I'm going to say, you know, I've heard that this is a very good route to go. Here's why. Um, you know, like we already said, always say yes, then figure it out. Um, but some of the other ones, like I just mentioned earlier, bus rules, you know, life on the road, what it's like to live on a bus and some of the thing, the do's and don'ts of, of being on a bus. Some are very obvious, but others not so much. And um, this one was interesting. Concert design is 60% politics, 20% psychology, and 20% art. I loved that. You know, that to me was like, (laughs) 
And that explains so many things in our industry. Like if you look at our industry from the outside, if somebody came and said, you know, Seth Jackson, wow, he just gets to sit at this console and just make beautiful things happen every night. That's his gig. But 60% of your gig is dealing with the behind the scenes politics that they're not seeing when you're sitting at that desk, right? So that's it's uh, very true. And I, I mean, I sat on a panel once with, with Willie Williams and I had that impression in my head. It's like, well, I know what I go through, but he does you too. And they're so artsy and so visually stunning and there's no budget and which is all total crap. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, once I had a discussion with him, I realized, no, he has a huge political wheelhouse to navigate between the amount of opinions that are involved in those creative processes. And he has to dance all through all of that constantly. Yeah. There's the 60% right there. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's really, it was, it blew my mind. Cause I was like, I never thought about, I thought, you know, well, surely somebody gets to just be an artist. Yeah. No. Well, <laughs> and, and even just on the, on the relationship between you and the artist, um, you mentioned in the book, and I think there's a whole chapter about it, or at least part of a chapter where you're talking about the relationship with production managers, the relationship with different people on the team and what that should look like. And you yeah. mentioned the creative director. And when you go from a situation where you are basically acting as the creative director and you're the LD on the show, and then all of a sudden they put someone between you and the artist, and now you are supposed to be answering to the creative director's vision, not to the vision that you're creating based on the words from the artist, um, it all changes. And you said your first approach was basically to push back on that. And then you, you kind of sat back and said, wait, I'm just making my life difficult. Why don't I just embrace this relationship with yeah. the creative director instead? And that just turned everything around for you. But, you know, just another one of those things that's not obvious to people from the outside. They think you have 100% creative control, but you know, you're answering to an artist and then sometimes you're answering to a liaison between you and the artist, which is that creative director. Right. So, yeah. And then a manager and a budget, schedule and a venue size. And another good one, another good one is uh, designed to your worst room. And yeah. uh, another great, sort of design philosophy that, you know, to me doesn't come obvious. So you design this great, big, beautiful rig. And I don't remember who you said it was. I think you said it might be Toby Keith, who, you know, you design this beautiful rig. And then the first venue is a, is a dumpy venue with, you know, a much lower trim height and smaller stage and all kinds of challenges that sort of weren't there in the big picture that you were thinking of. Right. Yeah. We just had it happen last week. Um, my design partner, Nathan Owls, and I opened Lauren Daigle, and she's making the big move from, you know, two trucks, three trucks to seven and full arenas and all of that. And it was a very scenic, intensive show that we've put together. Mm-hmm. But right out of the gate, we went to Pensacola, and there's not enough trim height. So we already were making a plan B <laughs> as you're rolling into town with this beautiful show that looked great in rehearsals. And now you've got to know that it's going to work there because there's going to be others of those. You just kind of have to figure out how to detach things or crunch things or, and if you do that to where you're entirely, you know, we still had a great show. Yeah. And then the next night they had the full show. And then the night after that, they had one more compromise, yeah. but the show still will go away looking at, they got the visual idea of what's going on. And, you know, sometimes people will go out with these designs that are so predicated on specific, you know, specificities of 
height and width and depth. Mm-hmm. And they're just, it's like, it all stays in the truck. Yeah. None of it comes yeah. in because it's all attached to itself. And yeah, and those are, that doesn't really help anybody. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And so another, uh, point that I sort of discovered in your book was this, this, uh, trend, I guess, that isn't a good trend of technology over talent. And, um, you talk quite a bit about that. The fact that, you know, uh, you kind of, you blow your wad in the first couple of songs, uh, or some designers are out there doing that. You know, they're, they're basically trying to discover every feature on every product that they've got hanging in the first couple of songs. And then, you know, what do you got left for the rest of the show? Right. You just have to keep pushing more of that at us. And- yeah. You know, then it becomes not special anymore, yeah. and then it becomes tedious, and then it just becomes, you know, innocuous and ignored. Yeah. Um, well, and along that same line, you were talking about, um, you know, lights that are blasting the audience and blinding the audience, and the fact that some designers or some directors think that that's cool until, you know you're sitting in those first 10 rows or wherever those lights are directed and you're, you're in the path of the beam, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, that you think a lot about those things. Yeah. It's, it's always been a, a weird, I, I forgot when it first, I guess it was somewhere around when the Sharpie first came into, into the picture and uh, it became very clear to me. And this was actually something that Manilow pointed out because he has a fit about spill into the, into the audience. Mm-hmm. Cause he's like, I, you know, they don't want to see that. They're trying to see a show, and you're making them suffer through this beam that just wasn't focused well enough and is spilling into. And then when the Sharpie came along, I really got that because if you don't do those focuses just right, some poor soul is going to have to spend their two hours of $135 spent with this beam in their face. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> looks great in front of house. You know? <laughs> yeah. When I had Mark Brickman on, we were talking about EDM festivals, and Mark was critiquing the way that some of those shows are designed because they're very in-your-face shows. And he made a very valid point saying that if I was in that crowd wasted out of my brains on Molly, the last thing I'd want is like 2,000-watt strobes blasting me in the face all day. And I said, fetal position on the ground. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. And I was like, well, you know what? That's a very good point. I, you know, I guess I just assumed that that's what everyone wanted was to be like blinded by the lights, but they probably really don't, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And this one, this one I thought was a very valid point. You know, one of the things that I've talked a lot about with designers who have come on this podcast is when you're designing a, sh- a live show, um, paying consideration to the fact that there's 10,000 people watching it in their arena, but there may be a million people viewing it in the next few days on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so that now you have a philosophy where you, d- you balance the spots to your iPhone. Yeah, that was something that uh, David Covertina, uh, who was with Kenny Chesney for basically that era where the phones were becoming the thing clued me into when he was doing Selena for me. He was like, so you want me to balance this or you want me to balance it to my phone? And it was like the light bulb went on. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. But that's exactly what it is. The majority of people will see the show through somebody's iPhone and however skilled their photography 
level is, and that's what you're going to get. I mean, yeah. I've heard rumors that Keith Urban hires people off of YouTube. So, yeah. you know, it's just it's it's what's out there and it's accessible and people look at it all the time. And I was amazed. I mean, I've, I checked out some Selena things as that tour progressed, and every time it was just fine. Yeah. No, and but I, it, it it's so true. Like, if you think of a successful tour these days, I how many people are going to see that show? Let's say it's, you know, 15 shows, or let's say 20 shows, because it's a nice round number, uh, times 15,000 people. So what is that? 300,000 people over the course of a show, you know... I don't care what tour it is. If it's a popular act, you're going to get tens of millions of views of various YouTube videos that have been uploaded um, of that show from all kinds of cities. And, you know, sometimes one video might have, you know, more than a million views of, of a live video of a song done by an artist. And so, you know, you're designing to 300,000 people or, you know, 3 million people. Um, it's, I think it's a choice that you've got to make. And you obviously don't want to, you don't want to make the live show look bad for the sake of people who are watching it at home on YouTube. But at the same time, you don't want to ignore them either. No, I think, uh, I mean, I've heard Jeff speak on this a bunch. I mean, Jeff Rabbit knows exactly the right balance. And he's taught sessions on that. It's like, okay, here's how it still looks good in the room. Here's how it still looks good on the camera. And there is some compromise, but it doesn't have to be to one extreme or the other. Yeah. And, and there's just some consideration that just needs to be thought through in that process of what color choices you put in the spots, how you balance, I, you know. I think he talked about that on uh, on the podcast that he did with us. We had a podcast about lighting, um, televised events, uh, you know, live music for television, basically. And it was him and uh, Bob Barnhart and uh, and Tiffany Keys talking. And we talked a little bit about that. You know, the fact that some of these shows, um, who was it who went out in the last couple of years and they had like three or four big iPhones you know, the rig looked, the screens, there was like three or four screens. I think it might've even been five screens. Was it the stones? No, it wasn't the stones. It was just like in the last couple of it years. Was, oh, well the, 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 yeah, the one stones thing is like the big giant iPhone cubes of video standard. Yeah. Up. Yeah. And you know, someone said that it was designed that way because that's what you're going to be watching. You're going to be watching the show on an iPhone. So they made <laughs> these five big iPhones basically. And, uh, it, you know, it's a real thing. I mean, to ignore it is, is silly. And, you know, I don't know how many artists are starting to do it, but I went to one show where they banned you from pulling your iPhone or your any phone out of your pocket. No cameras, no video, no nothing. And they literally had people standing there just watching for someone to even just check a text from your girlfriend or something. You couldn't do that. Oh my God. And, and if they saw you doing it, they'd take your phone away and then give it back to you at the end of the show. But, uh, I mean, you know, and it was, uh, it was a Kevin Hart show and Kevin was doing, um, new new material material. or something. Yeah. He was doing new material that he was rehearsing for a Netflix special or something. So he didn't want it out. But um, I don't know how you can control that anymore. I mean, I saw how hard they worked just for that one show. I can't imagine trying to do it for a whole tour. So no. it ain't going and, anywhere. And like you know, and sometimes the reverse is true. They encourage it. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were doing Star Wars, it was no problem because I mean, 
Cohen and I had kind of crafted that thing the way it was, but they encouraged people because they were trying to get the word out about what this thing was. Yeah. Like, Film away, post away, do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was free marketing. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the last point I'll make about your book was, um, I don't remember if it was a chapter or just a, a part of a chapter where you were talking about a call for artistry. And then one of the one of the uh, statements made, I th- it was uh, like a Dr. Phil quote or something where you said, never miss a good opportunity to <laughs> shut up. Yeah. And, yes. you know, again, designers on this podcast all the time. And, and I know friends who I've talked to about this, you know, it, it's it's kind of, a, you know, it's been oversaid, but, you know, it's it's as important what you're not lighting, you know, darkness is um, as important as the light and all of those things, however you want to say it. But um, but, you know, like Mark Brickman talked about a um, a Neil Young show he did and it was on one of the festivals. It wasn't Lollapalooza. It was the one that's in uh, Palm Springs. Or it was wherever. Coachella, wasn't Coachella, it? Coachella, yeah, Coachella, where he lit Neil Young with, with 16 follow spots, and that's it. And, you know, he was ridiculed by, by the production manager and by whoever it was who were looking at this plot going, come on, man, you know, really? No lighting rig? And um, it was just such a, uh, you know, a, a loved show. Like it, he just got amazing reviews on it and stuff because it was just beautiful. It was, you know, beautiful in its simplicity. So. I love that sort of stuff. I think it's so great when somebody goes for that. And he could do it. The way yeah. that man's mind works, there's there's no limits. So. Well, and you made a <laughs> quote about Barry Manilow when, when you asked, uh, you had a bunch of in- industry people at a show. And you were talking about what was the key moment of the show or whatever? Oh, yeah, yeah, when the whole thing shut down, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Despite lifts and staircases and costume changes and dancing girls and headdresses and all of that, they they all loved the song where he sat in a half-body spotlight with nothing else on and sang a cappella on a railing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. that, that was the moment. Yeah, so it's amazing. With that much technology up there, that was the moment, right? I love that. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, on this book, you know, I hope that especially people who are new to the industry, anyone, though, I mean, I, I think anyone would enjoy this book. But certainly, you know, this is the kind of book that I, sh- I think should be handed out to students who are who are going to school for theater and, and planning a career in this side of the business. I, I just think it's such a great read and it's a, sh- a shortcut to a lot of head bumps that you're going to get in your first couple of years out on the road and maybe saving you from some of those bumps on the head. <laughs> save you from some pain, yeah. <laughs> save you some, from some pain. It's it's a great book, and again, bravo for writing it. I I, uh, I think it's uh, it's really well done. And, and yeah, so um, let me know when it's available and how people can get it, and I'll make sure that we promote it as much as we can too, so... Absolutely, yeah. So I do this thing now called uh, called the Quick Six, and it's just basically six questions I ask everyone. And so, question number one: What is the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? Hmm. Um. Always say yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's and figure uh, it out later. <laughs> that's a fantastic piece of advice that I kind of have built a career on as well. So, uh, you know, certainly it's caused me some grief at times, and maybe caused other grief at others grief at times. But it, 
you know, I think if you if you're saying no, people are going to question your lack of confidence. You know, if, if exactly, you know, yeah. exactly, and you may not even think you can. You know, I mean, there's been times when I've taken these jobs. And it's like I don't know how to do this, but yeah. let's find out. out. Yeah, yeah, let's figure it out. So one of the things in this industry is what I call pinch me moments, basically, you know, just these moments where you suddenly get just this clarity of thought that you're standing there doing something or talking to someone or, you know, having breakfast with someone or whatever it is. And you just go, wow, am I really doing this? Like, this is, mm-hmm. this is the coolest thing ever. So what, what is your biggest career pinch me moment? Wow, there's been so many um, One that places I've never gone, and um, I would say, looking back, I remember the. It wasn't opening night; it was the second night that we opened Star Wars, and myself and the lighting designer Brian Brancic and Cohen and Curtis were all sitting in our front of house, minding our own businesses, and. Sitting, sitting down two feet away from us was George Lucas. Oh and my God! I think that's when I sort of lost it. Oh my! <laughs> I was God. fine till then. That is why I think we all did subtly holding it together. You know. <laughs> Were you a bit of a Star Wars geek? Uh, more than a bit. Oh really? Uh, that whole that whole project to me was just so much like I was an eight year old again. It was. An absolute thrill to do it every single minute of it. The, yep. pro- the creative process, the whole thing. It just was it's like the narrator was Anthony Daniels. It's like, yeah, I'm hanging out with C3PO. We're having dinner. That's what's happening that right is now. Funny. So all of that kind of wrapped itself up when, unbeknownst to anybody until the very last minute, George decided to see what this thing was all about and was on his way to somewhere else and diverted to come see this. And that it's is like, cool. did you have to sit right there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I read somewhere, maybe in your book, but I read somewhere that uh, you used to brag to your friends that you were the only guy who had C-3PO in your, in your phone book. <laughs> On my cell phone? phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had his number stored in your phone. I don't think I'm the only one, but yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool. Well, the only one out of your friends, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very cool moment for sure. Uh, and I won't tell anybody that you would have done that gig for free, right? Absolutely not, no. Yeah. Don't tell Steve, especially. <laughs> <laughs> is is there one piece of gear or tool or kit that you cannot do your job without? Hmm. First thing that goes in the toolbox for every every show or tour that you do. Well, I want to steal Barnhart's answer and say the programmer, but yeah. um, that was that was actually pitch perfect. But I mean. Hmm. I'm not a gear hound about that kind of stuff. Um, I would say that it's not really a piece of gear so much because I don't really get involved with the consoles anymore. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I like the programmers to choose what they're comfortable with. And the fixtures are, the, the duality across the line in fixtures means that you can pretty much, you know, leave it to your vendor to say, hey, I've got 60 of these and 20 of those, and the 60 will go out cheaper. It's that same old argument of how the industry's kind of shifted that people actually think about that. It's like, I need a spot that has these three features, everything else I can live with or, or discover. Well, and but as much do you as... you have that? And if you don't have that, do you have this one? Okay, yeah. then that's the one we'll use. It, it's, um, you know, a, a lot of my friends who are on the manufacturing side, including our sponsors of this podcast, hate when I say it. 
But I think that that's a positive step for our industry. I think that that had to happen. We had to get a little more fiscally responsible and accept, you know, if it just needed to have this many patterns and, and this kind of color and roughly this much light output. And, you know, you give like five or six key features that it's got to have as opposed to a specific item number under a specific manufacturer. I just think it's you're doing a bigger service to your artist by doing that, by by accepting. Yeah. And certainly there are unique fixtures or products, you know, when you talk about a console, you know, you're not going to say a Grand MA3 or similar. You're going to want the Grand right. MA because that's the console that you're using, right? So Yeah. Um, and I think for me, the weird one that seems to set me off, because most of my bit specs say things like this or this or similar. Yeah. The one thing I don't really... It, where I have to put a stamp on and say, we got to talk about whatever it is you want to put forth is haze. It's that uh, as weird as that sounds. Interesting. That's the one that I have such frustration with because, you know, to me, the best thing ever was a pair of DF fifties and fans that turn on at two in the afternoon and you're good to go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but you know, then, well, they spit or we don't have them anymore. Or it's the wrong fluid or, you know, the musicians union won't allow you to run for this length of time or, or, or. So what do you expect now? And so all these other brands have come out and some of them, it's like the giant cloud that goes across and then there's nothing or it all is stage left, but it doesn't transpire. Through. It just, even haze to me drives me nuts. I can't say I've got a product solution to it yet. But other than just keeping my DF50s, but yeah. I don't know how much longer I can get away with that. <laughs> so that, that may be the answer to my next question, which is, is there anything that hasn't been created that you would want to see created? Um, well, yeah, I would definitely put that one on the list of, you know, and they may be out there. I may have just not gotten my research done to know it. Yeah. Um, is, is, a, is a hazer that can handle an arena air system. And be an even field. I don't need clouds. I don't need only the left half. I don't need to see the wisps going across. But what a, a DF-50 was able to do. Um, but again, you've got the other issue of will it meet the safety requirements and the this and the that. You know, I think the days of you know heating that cell ammoniac powder on a hot plate's probably passed. So <laughs> yeah, we're not allowed <laughs> I'll to let do that, that one go. Yeah. Jeez. We've gotten so boring. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, who is or was the greatest influence for you in your career? Oh, Cohen, without a doubt. Wow, that's um, both that's pers- cool. personally, professionally, and his design style. With without even thinking about it, yeah. I love the way he approaches music. I love the way he lights. I love how he finds the surprise to take a cue, and it's never. He's never shy about a cue. You know, they've got real power and force behind them. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, having known him now, you know, as close friends for 10, 15 years now, it's like, yeah, he's, I'm just inspired guy. by him. I yeah. love what he's done with his career and his life and he's all of that. He's a great man. So, he's, a, he's a good guy. Yeah. And you were talking about cueing and stuff. One of the, one of the interesting things that popped out, uh, uh, I think it was last week with Bob Barnhart, if I remember correctly, was commit to the queue. You know, basically, once you hit go, it's gone <laughs> and move on. Yeah. You know, if if something went wrong or you hate it or whatever, don't try and go backwards. Don't try and make it disappear. Just keep going. Yeah. Hit the next one. <laughs> yeah. Hit the next one. Yeah. And so finally, and I know some of the answers to this, but I'd like to hear you say it all. But 
what in this industry something very important i think for the the continuation and the the expansion of the industry and just to continue improving this industry is to constantly get better people and great people coming into this industry especially young kids who you know now do have a route through school to be able to get into this industry cuz back when we started there was no such thing really um and but you know how do you give back through mentoring training coaching charity any of the above or all of the above um, this is such a, a great, grateful industry and one that does uh, show gratitude towards, you know, up and coming and we give back and we pay it forward and all of those great things. But specifically for you, um, what are some of the things you do? Well, um, obviously, the book is, is certainly the forefront of this current present. Um, like I said, I have been a college professor. Uh, and built a program that was for about seven years, and that had some great successes. Everybody that came out of that program is all in the business, and they're all working. Um, that is cool. That, that's very rewarding to see. Yeah. Um, one of them actually works for Bob Barnhart, so there you go. Wow, um, that's really cool. Uh, so, they, you know, that that was very rewarding, and I thought we were kind of on to something, but we haven't quite figured out all the kinks yet. I think that's the biggest thing that I would like to see and be a part of in the coming years is we've got to figure out better ways um, to develop intern and mentoring programs. I know Hemsley does some great stuff, and they continue to expand that with, with, the, with the Hemsley program and all of that. But, you know, some way, and to connect it with universities, like, everybody's close. Everybody's really kind of, they're, they're seeing the, the relevance of what it is that we do over here on this side of the world. Uh, I know Carnegie Mellon's developed great exposure to this side of the business. But well, I'd love to see something a little more um, centrically focused on this side of the business, the touring, live concert, live event side yeah uh so I, I don't know quite how to get there yet but i mean i've done all of the above i've had interns i've had um i've had people who just call me up and say i want to know what you're doing i said well I, I can't pay you or house you but you can sit in rehearsals come on down and you can sit right behind the console and watch us do our thing because that was done for me and it was incredibly helpful yeah um so things like that are always kind of evolving i'll get emails from people i make sure i always answer the emails it's like you know, somebody answered the letter for me. I'm going to answer this email. So that's amazing. That, that's to me is very important. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I th I think you're doing so much, and and I've actually got some newly sort of developed ideas on some ways to create um, training and mentoring programs in this industry, and maybe I'll share it with you in another conversation or something. But um, you know, let's just say not everyone goes to sort of structured educational uh, establishments. So not everyone yeah. wants to learn in a school. And so I think if there were uh, other ways to, to go about that, I, I think it, it could work. And I've got some ideas that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a typical entrepreneur in that if I sit still for five minutes, I come up with a business. <laughs> exactly. I got a new idea. <laughs> I try really hard not to do that because especially as I get older, I don't have the same energy to build businesses as I did when I was 40. But, um, but yeah, so did I miss anything, Seth? I, I think we've pretty much covered most of it, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, what do you got coming up? Anything interesting, exciting, new, fun? 
Well, like I said, uh, Nate and I, with our Darkroom Creative Endeavor, uh, just launched Lauren, and so she's starting out. And then we're jumping in next is Toby Keith, and that happens in May. And then we've got a couple of others that I can't talk about yet, but I'm really stoked about. Um, Very cool. One in particular is it's an old school rock and roll act, and I, I'm so excited to like get out of the way, you young kids. I'm going to do this without time code. Watch me. Wow. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. So. That's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much for doing this today. And uh, I appreciate it. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot from this. And also, I want to mention one last time here before I let you go is that um, watch for this book. You know, I just I really think that this book is is a big deal. And I think it's something that we needed. And I know there's definitely some other really great books, including I think there was one written by Jeff Ravitz on concert lighting design. Was there? Um, it was Jim Moody. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Moody. Partner. yeah. 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 That's who it was. Right. And uh, but I, I just think the way this is written and um, how easy it is to read and the fact that it's not 800 pages long. You know, it, it's absolutely worth everyone getting, and uh, and I thank you for writing that. So, you have an amazing week, and thank you for for uh, joining me today on this. Thanks so much. I think it's great what you're doing here. This podcast is fantastic. I love it myself. So. I appreciate that, Seth. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Okay. All right, my friend. Sweet.